2 Samuel 1, 17-27 David intoned this lamentation over Saul and his son Jonathan. He ordered that the song of the vow be taught to the people of Judah. It is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain upon your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor bounteous fields. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, anointed with oil no more. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, nor the sword of Saul return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided, they were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with crimson in luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Holy God, send your spirit upon us that as your scripture has been read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what it is you have to say to us this day. Amen. De mortuis nil nisi bonum. Speak no ill of the dead. Have you heard that before? Diogenes attributed this saying to Chilon of Sparta. Other accounts vary as to who actually said it first, but no matter who originally said this phrase, essentially, you know, don't speak poorly of anybody who is deceased, don't badmouth a dead person, whoever said it originally, the sentiment still is with us. Maybe it haunts us. A little bit. When I served at Grace United Methodist Church in Cheyenne, um, I became connected with one of the local funeral homes. They had long learned that the United Methodist clergy, there were four churches, four United Methodist churches in Cheyenne, they had long learned that it was the United Methodist clergy that were mostly available for services, funerals, uh, memorial services for people who were not a part of their congregation. They had found that many other churches or denominations would not do services for people that didn't go to their church. And so in the last few years that I served there, I officiated 30 to 50 funerals a year. Now, fun is not the right word, but I found it a very special and sacred joy to be able to sit with families in the midst of their deep grief, to take their stories and remembrances that they would share with me over just an hour or so, and to be able to shape all of that into a coherent articulation of life and to honor the person who had died. Now, I often sat with families 
I got really refined in the questions I would ask and trying to urge them to tell me about their loved one. Sometimes it was harder than others. Sometimes families were very, very talkative. And there were some families who had nothing but glowing reports to share. She was the best mother in the whole world. He would do anything for anybody. He never had a bad word to say about anyone. And while I never, ever discounted what a family would share with me, sometimes I wondered if this person could be as lovely, (laughs) as lovely two-dimensional as they seem to be kind of portrayed to me. At other times, a family would share something that they didn't want me to say. He really struggled with his temper. But, but don't say that. I, I'm going to tell you some stuff right now I don't want you to share. I tried to encourage in those times the idea that this service was for them and for their healing, not necessarily for the deceased, and that maybe sharing the full experience of this person might help the grieving process. Most often, that was a declined approach. But my favorite times were when, after sharing some stories and basic facts, a family member would say something like, Now, don't get me wrong, he was ornery, or she was very strict. She liked things to be in a certain way. And the others gathered would just kind of laugh and relax and tell the real stories that showed the complexity of who this person really was. And I always felt like those funerals or memorial services would be extra special. And I could tell in the memorial service when I would share that detail, like, but man, he was a stubborn son of a gun. There's like this collective sigh of relief about the honesty and the way, um, you know, that the family chose to approach the grief. It was always a loosening, an opportunity to recognize the humanity in us all. And those felt like extra special, super sacred times. So the first thing that struck me in reading our scripture for today earlier in the week, this song of lament, it's a scripture that is entitled the song of the bow, so we, or the bow, um, so we have the song of the bow, and then it's the song that David teaches to the rest of Israel. Um, most scholars think that actually the song that we see in Second Samuel chapter 1 was written by David. The first thing I was struck, of, struck by when reading this was that it speaks no ill of the dead. Is very, very complimentary to Jonathan, who was David's best friend, but also to Saul. I found that very curious, and so I did a little bit of digging and found that this song that David wrote is written in the traditional style of Kina. 
a Hebrew dirge for the dead, a type of song that looks back on accomplishments and honors the dead, therefore absolutely no ill is spoken of the dead. Which I can understand when it comes to the relationship between David and Jonathan. They were the best of friends. But do you remember Saul? Do you remember how Saul treated David? How at first when David would play music for Saul, or at the time when, as Jamie Lee preached about last week, David defeated Goliath, you know, Saul would sing David's praises. But later, as David got older and became a successful soldier and a beloved leader. Saul's jealousy got the better of him, and he made David's life a living nightmare, always having to look over his shoulder because Saul was always sending people to try to come and take David down. David was Saul's sworn enemy. Remember that Saul was first anointed king, but then when that didn't seem to be going well, God led Samuel to David to anoint him as king while Saul was still king. And even so, when Saul dies, David has no ill to speak of him. Now, some of the commentaries that I read this week while I was doing some research, trying to figure out why, not only in this style of the ancient tradition of Kena, would David not share at least a little of a hint at how difficult this relationship was. Scholars really kind of focused on the idea that David was leading a whole group of people and leading the people of Israel through their grief. And Saul had done something for Israel. He wasn't totally a flop as a king. They had been searching for so long for a king. They wanted an identity. And Saul's conquests over the Philistines helped the Israelites to gain confidence and a sense of freedom. Saul was the father of Jonathan, who was greatly beloved and a highly admired prince. So Saul did some good things, and David, in this song of the bow, tries to share with the Israelites and teach the Israelites to sing of Saul's accomplishments. So David's lament for Saul and Jonathan is meant to remind the Israelites that even though they are a small nation, they are mighty, and to help create a sense of hope in the midst of this great despair of losing their leaders. And yet, despite these ancient traditions and the weight of the entire community of grief, I still want to consider what it might have been like to share the complexities of this situation. Because Saul was not perfect. He struggled with hearing voices and suffered violent mood swings. They affected the people around him greatly. He hurt people. And I wonder if glossing over the reality of his life was a cheap balm. 
What would happen if the idea of honoring someone didn't exclude their humanity? What would happen if we thought of sharing the wholeness of a person, not as speaking ill of them, but as a way to honor them? In an article called, Just Because Someone is Dead Doesn't Mean You Have to Like Them, by hospital chaplain Katie Friedman Miller, she writes, People are paradoxical. We embody opposing parts, some good, some bad. The definitions of such things we may look deep into the heart of life to define for ourselves. And in the end, we love people we love the most, not because they are perfect. People are who they are to us often because of those weird, ugly, or problematic parts. Love requires the opposite of perfection. And if we want to honor someone's memory, I actually think that the best way to do it is to remember the fullness of their person. I remember meeting with one family in particular about their deceased mother and grandmother, and the conversation was going often as as it often did. She was the sweetest person ever. She didn't have a mean bone in her body. And they shared stories that supported this idea. They were stories of love and grace. Oh, I wish you could have known her, they said to me. And then one granddaughter said, you know, she left tissues everywhere. The whole family stopped for a minute, kind of looked at each other, and then laughed and started sharing some of her more peculiar idiosyncrasies and how she always thought she was unattractive and that she had a low sense of self-confidence and that she loved taking used tissues and sticking them down into the crevices of all chairs. <laughs> it was a moment of levity to remember that this person was perfectly imperfect, a precious expression of creation, a beloved child of God, and gave us all the grace to be perfectly imperfect, too. I pray these have been the words of the Lord for us this day. Amen.